So welcome everyone. Um, the topic for today is make useful predictions. Uh, why this is relevant um, is whether we like it or not, we're all in the business of making uh, some form of prediction. It's not just economists who are predicting interest rates. It's not just pollsters predicting election outcomes. Uh, it's not just investment analysts trying to predict earnings per share uh, outcomes for companies. We know those things are, are difficult and can be problematic. But for the rest of us, whether you're in a strategy type role, we have to make predictions about what competitors will do and what regulators might do. If you're in a marketing and comms role, you may have to make predictions about how your members or clients might respond to your various communications. Uh, you're going to have to think about which investment strategies might work. And even about ourselves, we have to make predictions about when might I want to retire, what might I want to do in retirement, et cetera, et cetera. So the question for today, I guess, is how can we make more useful predictions. So they might be better, but actually ultimately make them more useful. So joining me today for this conversation is Stephen Hubbard. Uh, Stephen is an independent consultant to superannuation funds and other financial industry participants. Welcome, Stephen. Great, thank you for inviting me to be part of this. And you, for, you forgot the prediction about how my football team's gonna go this weekend. Oh, I'm sure that would be a terrible prediction. So <laughs> we'll get, maybe we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but I guess, um, well, Stephen and I share an interest, uh, not just about football predictions, but about the sort of application of decision-making research across financial service investment sort of uh, domains um, generally. And so we thought this might be an interesting topic for a, a range of different participants. So on that note, perhaps Stephen, I might kick off with a question about the context. So predictions serve different purposes I mean, and some things are going to be more useful in different contexts than others. Can you do you have some examples that might be able to sort of flesh out how that that might happen? Yeah, thanks, Simon. And a lot of it depends on the outcome. What what are we going to do with that prediction? So prediction on its own isn't much isn't much use unless we link it to the actions you're going to take place, um, or what you, you know what you're going to do based on that prediction. So you know a prediction that it's going to be raining tomorrow. Well, it's useful. I'll know whether to pack my umbrella or not. But if I get it wrong, it doesn't matter that much. Um, if I'm predicting a share price, or if I'm a fund manager trying to predict do my um, portfolio allocation, it's probably more important that I I get it right and. I think when we talk about context, it really does matter what, what decisions we're going to make. A lot of the work I do more recently is around strategy. So there we're looking at predictions, knowing that whatever we predict won't come through in the narrow sense, but it's directional, it's plausible futures. And I think back, you know, I started life working as an actor in a life insurance company, and we're making predictions all the time with our quantitative models. And one of the things that we'd also always add to, when, to to the reports when we make a prediction is, you know, it is a prediction. It's not going to be guaranteed right. And I think a lot of people, we need to separate between the prediction, the probabilities associated with it, and nothing is guaranteed. Um, so it's the context is important. Yeah. So part of, I think, what I heard from you there is the, it's, that there's some things are more significant than consequential. So that the, the rain, the rain example is in, largely inconsequential unless there's a massive flood or something. But okay, fine, you might get a little bit wet versus some of these other things that are more consequential. But I think in in terms of the strategy that you're referring to there as well, there's you've perhaps got more levers to pull, haven't you? Than maybe an investor in listed listed equities, where all you can do is buy or sell or hold. You work out whether you're going to buy, sell, and hold, and how much maybe. 
Whereas in strategy, I'm guessing you've got a few more levers that you can pull in response to those predictions. You've got a few more levers, but also you've got a bit more scope to um, modify your strategy as you go, as more information appears. Um, whereas, you know, you buy or sell or hold, in depending on what way the market goes, you win or lose. You make money or you lose money. Um, in a strategic position, um, it is a very different context. So um, I think you're right. I think the the accuracy, the reliability, the trust, if you like, um, will vary dramatically depending on the context and what you want to do with that prediction. And, and if you are making a prediction that is almost irreversible, um, then you've got to think about doing that differently. And so it's interesting to look back at predictions that you've made and think, well, was it irreversible or not? And often we'll spend a lot of time deciding, should I take my umbrella tomorrow or not? And we might agonise over it. But in the big scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Okay, if we don't take it and it rains, we get wet, no big deal. If you're making a stock prediction um, and you're betting um, on a certain direction in the markets or a particular stock, then the consequences of getting it wrong are very different. So I think it, it, when we think about consequences or actions, a lot of that will depend on what will go wrong if we get this, if the prediction um, fails. Yeah, so what's an example of this an irreversible prediction that you're referring to there? Well, I think a stock a stock selection. Um, you know, we decide to buy, the market plummets or that particular stock goes down, um, we can't reverse it and do something a bit differently. Um, if I buy, if I go to a restaurant and can't, you know, someone predicts that a certain dish will be a good dish or not, um, and I and I eat it, okay, I know I'm not going to go back there again or eat that dish again. So what? It doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things when we when we when we look at the bigger scale. Whereas with a stock selection, it can have a more lasting impact. So a lot of it will come down to the how long the impact will last, if you like, or how how reversible can I recover from it. Oh, okay, that would, that's what you mean by reversible. Can I recover from? Because I was thinking, nothing's reversible, is it? When no. every every have you got a rewind button on your? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think interestingly as well on the on the investing side. So uh, I I would work with a listed equities team, but also with private equity and venture capital groups. And to some extent, they're doing the same thing. They're trying to understand a business. What's going to happen to it? How do I value it? For example, but the mechanisms they then have to then apply their, their their valuation or whatever. How do I actually turn that into a profitable investment strategy is quite different. I can only buy these standardized listed securities on, on the market mm -hmm. versus I can construct a fairly nuanced contract to purchase a whole business, which might have all sorts of warranties and, and um, mm -hmm. sort of structures around the payment mechanisms and earnouts and all sorts of other stuff. And so having forecasts, I think in that case, be able to say, well, actually, you know what? One of our forecasts is that management steps straight out the door and takes all their customers with them. Okay, fine. Let's tackle that with a um, uh, an earnout or a lock-in or something like that. So you get more mechanism. I'm guessing that's sort of more along the lines of strategy as well. You, you get a few of those sorts of things that you can tinker with. Yeah, and I'd even avoid using the term forecast in that sort of situation. The way I like to frame it when I'm talking to decision makers, boards, executives, is think about it in terms of scenarios and plausible futures. Um, because as soon as you start saying forecasts, that brings an element of um, authority with it and so, or, or of, of one direction. So I tend not to use the word forecast. I'll tend to use the word scenarios, 
plausible possible futures. And in your example, that's a great example where you say, okay, we're about to take over this company. What are the four or five um, main possible futures scenarios? And one of the possible scenarios is management leave or key managers leave. So, okay, that what we then need to do is think about, okay, what will play out if that leaves? So it's almost a thought experiment. Okay, but this happens, this happens, this might happen. We're not discussing yet whether it will happen or not. We're still looking at it as a possible future. And once we've played that possible future out and, and illustrated it almost like a bit of a science fiction writer, then we can sit down and say, well, what, what do we need to do in that case? If that happened, what are the things we have to have in place? And the advantage of doing that, there's a couple of good advantages. You know, if it does happen, we're not caught out by surprise. But even if something slightly different happens, we're already starting to think about possible um, tactics that we can put in place. So it opens us up to, well, we, we don't know for sure what will happen. And we're able to act on a more agile way when something unexpected does happen. Um, and so it's all about narrowing down the unknown unknowns and things like that. So, you know, give us more information about the future. Yeah. So that's, a, I think, a good segue then because I wanted to go through a bunch of different alternative ways of sort of thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. And I, I do take your point about the, the the language we use to describe it. Is it a forecast? Is it a prediction? Is it a plausible mm -hmm. future? But so thinking about this scenario uh, sort of analysis, so how can we unpack, therefore, what, what how does does it does it work? Well, that which I think is a sort of broad question. And then when does it work? What's your view on on scenario analysis more generally? Look, I think scenario analysis is a very broad term. So I think absolutely it works. But you've got to design your scenario planning um, playbook, if you like, for the particular circumstances. So if you're you know doing portfolio um, construction as opposed to buying a business, as opposed to planning a five-year strategy for an organisation, the types of scenario you're planning that you'll do is, is quite different. But I think scenario planning is an invaluable tool um, in business because fundamentally we're dealing with the unknown future. And, and that's what, um, that's really challenging. So the, one, one of the better ways of dealing with an unknown future is try to come up with what are some of the plausible futures. So that's scenario planning. The way I like to do it is to think about um, not just sit down and imagine possible scenarios, but look at what's driving. What are the key drivers for the situation we're dealing with? And then what might happen with each of those drivers? So if I'm thinking about it from a business strategy point of view, I might have drivers such as um, economics, regulation, uh, environmental, uh, technology, consumer trends. And I'll have a think about what each of those is doing and then bring that together to have a think about what it might mean for my organisation. If I'm looking at stock selection, it's a little bit narrower and I'll think, okay, what particular companies am I looking at and what are the key drivers that are going to impact um, the valuation of that company? Um, and then I'll build my scenarios around that. Yeah. So, so one thing that I think accords nicely with the decision making research around scenario analysis is, uh, well, there's, there's broad research, but one piece of research that, that sort of stands out in my mind is is looking at unsuccessful versus successful. Uh, I think it was mergers and acquisitions or large scale capital projects in companies, and one of the key determinants about whether it was a um, a successful transaction, I think it was, but I can't remember precisely, 
was how many alternatives the board considered at the time. So when they were thinking about buying company XYZ, was it just, do we buy XYZ or not? Was it those, was it a yes, no question? Or was it, do we buy XYZ? Or you know what, if we saved that billion dollars that we'd, we'd spend on XYZ, actually then we'd buy ABC or we'd invest it back or we'd do a shareholder return or some other alternative. And so the more of these, well, the, the cases where there was only one alternative considered ended up being a, a much worse case than when sort of these multiple different alternatives were considered. And scenario analysis sort of seems, seems to play into the same sort of decision-making environment of having to think in multiple different ways. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting example you've given. And I guess, you know, people listening or watching this might think, well, are we saying it's there's a real danger scenario scenario analysis can, can turn into paralysis by analysis. You know, there's always another scenario, what if? Um, and in your example, okay, if we didn't spend the money on that company, we could buy this one. Or maybe we would invest in this um, new kit. Or maybe we could launch a new product. I mean, there's always something else you can do with the money. So you've got to put it in some sort of framework that helps you make a decision and not just continues the, the paralysis of looking at, well, I could do this, I could do that, I could do this. And so there's there's um, almost like decision theater. I'm, 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 I'm going through the motions. I think I'm making a decision and I convince myself I'm making a decision, but I'm not really. I'm really putting it off by doing mm. analysis analysis and more analysis so i think that's important so when you're thinking about scenario planning it's not you need a bit of a framework around it you need to have an agreed playbook you need to think okay this is what scenario planning will look like for our company or our particular department so if scenario analysis is being used for portfolio selection for stock selection for investment portfolio analysis there's a certain way you go about doing it um, and you've also got some finite um duration to make those decisions so that needs to be factored in as well so it needs to be fit for purpose yeah. if it's about buying a company or not buying a company again there's a duration there's certain parameters around that scenario planning as opposed to if i'm doing a five-year strategic plan yeah well, i think those two things my reflection that those two things are quite different if we're an investment context so i look at back back on some of the work that tetlock and others have done around mm -hmm. sort of um uh, their forecasting tournaments and that sort of stuff. And, and so if you look at, I think, Expert Political Judgment, for example, Tetlock's first book, um, uh, in which they tested scenario analysis, and they tested in the sense of not it's not a business context where you're thinking about pulling strategic levers and all that sort of stuff. It's just basically saying, can we get people to be more accurate so their predictions are more likely to be right? And also, can they get their confidence intervals um, more um calibrated, correctly calibrated. So if they think they're right 50% of the time, actually they are right 50% of the time rather than thinking they're right 90% of the time, they're only right 50% of the time. So that's a, a different measure. However, when they did it and they, they gave all these forecasters, this, so they walked them through scenario analysis sort of um, steps and the results were poor uh, in terms of it impacting uh, the decisions. And Tetlock's view was that you actually you could look at the two different types of forecasters and he had, you might remember, the foxes versus the hedgehogs. And so the hedgehogs are the ones that are sort of more ideologically driven. They got one big idea about how the world works. And unfortunately, what happened with those people is they gave them a scenario and said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you think that, I don't know, North Korea and South Korea unify, okay. But what about blah, 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 this alternative scenario? 
and, and the foxes were so sort of ideologically set in their ways, they go, oh, that would never happen. That's ridiculous. There's no point in me even thinking about that. That, that would, that's just a bizarre sort of off the wall scenario. Mm-hmm. So, so on the one hand, you had these hedgehogs who would dismiss the scenario and st- stuck in their ways. On the other hand, you had the foxes who were more a bit of this and a bit of that, and they were taking all these different perspectives into consideration. And then you're giving them this other scenario and they go, oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe it could be like that. And maybe, and actually they ended up being distracted by these scenarios. Oh, no, no, you're right. I should go over there. And they became less accurate. And so you end up with these two groups, one who ignored it and the other one who became less accurate. And Tetlock's going, God, that didn't work. So, so, but, and then he comes back with his second book and he's reflecting on a bit more of the evidence around these forecasting tournaments. And they set up this thing called scenario training, I think they said. And scenario training and people who went through the scenario training actually did better with their forecast, not as good as probability training, but better. But even the scenario training wasn't regular scenarios. It was scenarios plus making sure they didn't over forecast change, plus using decision trees, plus blah, 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 plus, 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 plus. And so even then you sort of left going, which part of all this actually really Mm -hmm. helped them uh, become more accurate? What's your reflection on that? Yeah, as I think... The first thing that's important to take away from that is forecasting, predicting scenarios. It is complex. You know, we're dealing with unknowns. And as soon as we're dealing with unknowns, it's complex. And there's no one right answer. And I think we need to accept that when we're going into predictions, forecasting, scenario planning. The other thing I think both fit together. It's not one or the other. And for me, when you're making complex strategic decisions, you need a diverse range of views. So the hedgehog is not completely right. The the um, uh, fox is not completely right. We need that. We need that blend. And having them together, I don't know if that in that experiment they did some work where both were making the prediction together or talking about it. Maybe that will get a better answer um, if people are open to the other person's point of view. Um, well, they did combine different forecasters. So this was part of the super forecasting stuff. We yeah. let's get the top of the top, the cream of the cream of forecasters, put them into teams, and those teams did do better than the individuals. Yeah. However, generally speaking, foxes did better than hedgehogs. That mm-hmm. that's that that mindset of being able to combine multiple perspectives rather than sort of the, the one ideologically ideological view tended to be better overall. Yeah, and it'd be interesting. I mean, often it's the one ideological view, but could be certain other biases that we have, um, and and uh, you know certain people are more prone to certain biases as well in terms of um, when we're doing our predictions and we're anchored in the past so much and things like that. Um, the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking there, and again it comes back, and I hadn't thought about this much before, but the difference between a forecast and a scenario planning. Forecasts and predictions are very useful inputs into your scenario planning. So it's not one or the other, because when I'm doing my scenario planning, whether I'm doing it at a corporate level or an individual level or thinking about products or thinking about buying a new company, I'm going to need predictions and forecasts as inputs in the scenario planning. I'll need to have some views of um, interest rates or unemployment rates or um, what's going to happen with North Korea and South Korea or whatever it is, I'm going to need those sorts of forecasts, but they're inputs into the scenario planning process, not an end in itself. Yeah, 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 I agree. I think there's a distinction between, you know, just uh, to me, do not rely on scenarios to give you accuracy. Correct. It's it's to flesh out risks, possibilities, yeah, to 
plan for strategic outcomes. So, so I think that's I think that's possibly why there's a bit of conflict in the industry about is this a good idea or not. As well, yeah. well what purpose is it, and how think, we how we using it? I, I think that's really back to that purpose. What do I want? What am I going to do with this information? Do I need a forecast so I can do a buy a buy or sell decision? Or am I coming up with a forecast to be able to influence my strategy? And if that's the case, then I do need to look at scenarios. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's move on to the next one then, which is around probabilities. And <clears throat> going back to that Tetlock research, they they provided that those that scenario training to those forecasters. That did have a benefit. It was better than the people who didn't have the training. But even better than the scenario training was probably what they call probability or probabilistic training. That's that sort of thing. What's your have you have you had experience with people using sort of assigning probabilities using confidence intervals that sort of stuff? Well, if I go back to my actuarial background, working in life insurance or superannuation, that's exactly what we do. It is all about assigning probability. So the first thing we have to do, we have to work out what's the probability that people are going to die next year and the year after and the year after. And then when we're doing our building our models, we're assigning confidence limits to that. So we can look at um, the ranges and the possible outcomes uh, and often doing stochastic modelling to be able to look at the possible outcomes. So what I think it's important to be able to do, can we translate some of that more quantitative modelling and forecasting, which actuaries do and other um, other people do, and apply some of those learnings to more qualitative um, examples of forecasting? And I think we can. And I think there's a lot to learn from that because how we can then use the probabilities apply, laying over the top can, again, inform decision-making. Yeah. So, so combining the concepts of scenario plus probability, would you advocate or have you seen people who would just say, here are three scenarios and actually let's give each one a probability? So the way I've done it, for example, um, I did some work with a big superannuation fund a number of years ago. We came up with, I can't remember now, half a dozen or so scenarios. And then we said, okay, what are the four most likely? And then we looked at those four. And then what we did was say, okay, if we look at strategic decisions, which of those decisions will work across all four scenarios or will be valid across all those four scenarios? So, yes, the idea of probability to help weight the scenarios um, and, and come up with a workable number of scenarios. But then again, it's important to look at, okay, which are more likely? Because otherwise, they're just as confusing as not having scenarios. So we do need that element of um, probability to be able to weight things. So in that case, if I've heard you correctly, you had four that you've said are more likely, and then you've had whatever the rump was that you said were less likely. But did you then go like, oh, okay, of these four, they're all roughly the same? Or do you go, actually, this is the most likely, and these other three are then secondary? Or do you go, this one's 50%, and then 20, 20, 10? Or how did yeah. you work from there? We absolutely would look at, in that case, which was the most likely, and then what were the key differences with the others. So that putting that element of probability over it and recognising that those probabilities might be you know, an element of subjectivity in it, but you've got to do that to guide the decision-making. So by doing that, it does help you. Otherwise, um, and then you look at our, our current strategy and see how that strategy might play out under the four scenarios. And that way you can identify um, the safe strategy options because if you've got a strategy decision, a particular product you might want to launch or a particular activity you might want to do, and you can see that that activity will actually be valid and be useful in, in three out of the four scenarios, 
there's a good probability that strategy will be a good strategy. Mm. Um, so that would be um, a good one to pursue. You might have a particular strategy, product initiative, whatever it might be, that you can see only really being valid in one of those four scenarios. Mm. So then you've got to decide, do I take that bet or not? Uh, because if I go for that particular strategy and that scenario doesn't appear, what am I going to do? Am I am I completely lost? Um, yeah. So yes. if that scenario is your 80% scenario, though, then maybe it's fine. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the way I use scenarios and probabilities. Absolutely. So it helps me not just um, think about how my strategy, develop my strategy. It helps me to get a feel for how my strategy might respond to the various scenarios. And the other part of that, you need to be monitoring it because in six months' time, certain things might have happened that change those probabilities. Um, and, you know, a change of government or a war in Ukraine might suddenly, well, something that might have been a low event has happened. So I do need to recalibrate my probabilities and my scenarios. So don't think it's just every five years I need to review or every three years I need to review it. Yeah, one thing you mentioned there was the, the subjectivity of setting the probability itself, which I think is an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because you might think, I don't want, don't ask me to assign a probability because I don't know whether it's 60% or 80%. It sort of feels like it's quite likely, but don't make me, don't force me put it to percent, put a percentage on it. However, if we don't explicitly put a percentage on it, implicitly we have a feeling for what it is. And my implicit feeling I might call very likely and someone else might go, yeah, my implicit feeling is, I call it very likely as well, but my very likely is 70, your very likely is 95. And we never really notice that there's this massive difference until someone says, what probability? And I go 70, you go, really? I thought it was 95. So I, I quite like, I, even though that's, there's a bit of tension in that because it feels uncomfortable having this, having a crack at the, the percentage, at least it allows that to be made explicit, open to criticism yep. for feedback from around the table, but also, geez, actually after we've done this a few times, how often do those 80% scenarios come true? Is it 80% of the time? Yep. So, so I, I, I quite like that, even though it's a bit uncomfortable, sort of maybe not forcing, but sort of encouraging strongly that people to have a crack at, at assigning an explicit percentage. Oh, and, and look, maybe even go to the forcing, because I'm, the example you gave of almost likely is a really important one, because we all interpret that completely differently. And that's part of the problem. You know, I remember back, you know, after after 9-11, there was the different colours and, and security alerts if certain things happened or didn't happen, the terrorism alerts. And, yes, they were all quite qualitative. Um, and they do mean different things to different people. Um, and people interpret them quite differently. And there's been a lot of research done on how people understand those sorts of uh, qualitative expressions of probability. And it's likely to happen could mean... 99% to some people, or it could be more than 50%. And if I'm just basing my corporate decision or my stock selection or whatever it is on hoping we've got a common understanding of what likely to happen means, we're bound for failure. So yeah. I agree. I think to, to say, okay, and even just to clarify, okay, you both think it's likely to happen. Does that mean more than 50%? that's likely 51 percent. it's more likely to happen than not happen or do you think likely to happen means 95 percent? yeah um, some of that research is by malbusen and malbusen you might have seen yeah. it's they've got this fantastic distribution and you can sort of see people's probability estimates and some of them are reasonably tight 
So some of those terms, I think, are, are reasonably well understood. And some of them are so broad to be almost meaningless. And in fact, some of them that are tight are, are, are a bit counterintuitive as well, because you might think, what does always mean? Always should mean 100%. Yeah. What, what do people think always means? Somewhere between 90 and 100%. <laughs> and, and that can have massive implications for your decision making. I mean, you know, I go back, you know, long, long time ago, I was teaching high school maths. And for those of the remember, we talked about um, almost likely and certain and that sort of one standard deviation, two standard deviations, three. And it was sort of a given that, you know, almost likely was three standard deviations. But what, is that true in business when people say almost likely? Are we putting a, a number of standard deviations to it to say the probability is 99.7 or whatever it might be? Mm. So, yes, we do need to ask those questions. So if I'm doing any decision making or any um, predictions, scenarios, modelling, anything like that, and mm. somebody says, oh, yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance of this happening, challenge it. Well, when you say a pretty good chance of that happening, are you saying it's more than 50? Are you saying it's 75 or two-thirds likely or whatever? And have that, and that forces the conversation and it and it helps you tease out what oh, I'm pretty sure that will happen mean. Um, or I think it's pretty good chance of that happening. By having that dialogue, you will end up with a better forecast and a better prediction, I believe. Well, at least you'll get more clarity around the table, won't you, in the end? Uh, perhaps we'll move on then to um, your friend of mine, Mr. Bill Gates, because I know we've had a conversation around his uh, his quote. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure actually whether this is his quote. I've just seen him quoted or paraphrased. So it's along the lines of what Bill Gates has been Bill Gates has been reported to have said: "Is we overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years, and underestimate the change that will occur in the next ten. Is Bill right? Do you think? I think. Fundamentally, uh, in principle, yes. I think there's a real challenge there, and you know, sometimes some that type of principle gets referred to the as the end of history illusion, which means that um, when we're thinking about projecting into the future, it's very hard to project something quite different from today. So it is challenging, and I think it is important to try and think a bit like a science fiction writer when we're doing, you know. Um, projections or predictions or forecasts, we do need to try and step out of um, what we what we know and think quite differently. Um, I mean, another quote from Bill Gates, which shows maybe he wasn't such a great forecaster, was in 2004, he said, two years from now, spam will be solved. Um, and I don't know about you, but I my spam folders are overwhelming in my email. He's similar to the one I think you quoted to me the other day as well, where someone said, oh, well, I can only see need for four computers across the world or something. Yeah. something like that. And that was Thomas Watson, the founder of IBM. Yeah. Um, so, yes, experts make bad decisions. Um, Decker in 1962 said they rejected the Beatles because they thought guitar bands were dead. So, and I think they're all examples of where our biases stop us having a clarity when we're looking at the future. And I think that's what Bill Gates was getting to when he talked about overestimating the next two years and underestimating what comes further than that. Um, you know, we we have we don't have that clarity. And that could be biases. It could be, you know, um, uh, personal gain or loss. So if I'm running a business and I don't want to, you know, if I'm sitting at, at Blockbuster or Borders, um, I don't want to predict um, Netflix in a way because that would be existential for me. So I keep on trying to find ways where 
they won't impact me that much. So um, there are all sorts of biases. And I think what Bill Gates is saying there, or the way I interpret that is, be, be wary of those biases. So, um, you know, I think about, you know, the smartphone. If I was doing any strategic planning or decision-making, say, five to seven years ago, it would be marginal in my strategy. Ten years ago, it wouldn't appear at all. Now, I wouldn't be making any sort of business planning, strategic decisions about where my business is going and how I'm going to interact with my customers without a smartphone being front and centre. So that's a great example where, um, you know, that that length of horizon from our predictions can go terribly wrong. Um, and one of the other things that we discussed when we were talking about this was, you know, something like a movie like Blade Runner. And for those of you that have, don't know Blade Runner, it was a 1982 movie based on uh, a book that was written in 1968. And Blade Runner, the movie, in 1982 was set in 2019. And there's been lots of interesting articles written about what Blade Runner got wrong and got right. One of the things that got right was video calls. So it predicted that people would use videos to communicate. But one of the things that got wrong was that the hero of Blade Runner, uh, Decker, needed to hop out and get a public, go into a public phone booth to make his video call. Um, so yes, we're all using video calls. Here we are today but there's certainly no need to go visit a phone booth to make those such a call. Yeah. So it, it is, and they had newspapers in Blade Runner in 2019. People were wandering around with their newspapers. So, yeah, it is difficult to imagine a future very different from the world of today. Yeah, but the, but the newspaper and the telephone box examples, which I like, because it's, it's saying, to me that says, yeah, we got some things wrong that we didn't predict that actually changed a lot, like your smartphone example. But actually, also, we get some things wrong that that um, uh, go the other direction as well. Mm -hmm. That we thought we're going to stay the same. So, so this, to me, the if I was to reinterpret the Bill Gates quotes, it would it would be around. Actually, you know what? The the future is more difficult to predict in multiple ways. Be they changes that we don't foresee, yeah. or things that stay the same that we don't foresee, and so we end up with this mixed bag. Because I mean, it's in Blade Runner we had cyborgs walking among us and we were living on mars and the interplanetary travel <laughs> sort of and we had our flying cars and flying cars yeah that's, that's yeah that's right so that's so it, again maybe it makes a difference again the, the context here because if i'm trying to make accurate predictions about the future i mean part of what tetlock did with his um forecasting training that was effective was encouraging people not to over predict change uh, yeah. for example so, so in some cases, yes, there's going to be more change than we anticipate. But I think it's, it's well, it, what Tetlock was doing is saying, okay, that's fine. But actually, in a lot of cases, there isn't as much change, certainly in the short term, which Bill Gates would mm -hmm. agree with, which was in the short term, at least, we've got all these impediments to change, which mean whether you're renovating your kitchen or building a, a new tunnel through the under the Westgate or whatever, um, that actually something's going to go wrong. You're going to hit rock or you go, oh, I don't know, something, something's going to go wrong. And you don't foresee that. Therefore, the whole thing takes longer uh, than, than you anticipate. And so those burdens can, I think, can actually get in our way in a way as well. Yeah, look, I like that idea about thinking about the change that will and won't happen. And I know there's another famous quote from another billionaire, Jeff Bezos, and he talks about, he gets asked a lot about what will change or whatever. Um, and he turns that question around and says, a better question is what's not going to change in the next 10 or 20 years. 
And if I'm, you know, if you read, go, go on with that quote that Jeff Bezos um, talks about, then things like customer service, wanting value for money, you know, what are the things that aren't going to change? And certainly when I'm doing any sort of strategic planning with uh, my clients, I very much ask that question as well, because I think what you, where you're getting to is we can get caught up in the shiny things that are going to change. Is it going to be flying cars or jetpacks or smartphones or artificial intelligence or blockchain? And we can get very caught up in all those things that are going to change and make our jobs completely different. But, and this is probably not so much at a stock or investment level, but certainly at a strategic decision-making level and whether I'm buying or selling or M&A or planning my strategy, what's not going to change? Um, because fundamentally, whichever business we're in, our customers are humans. And there are certain innate things that aren't going to change. What are we going to want? What are we going to need as humans? So if I'm talking to a super fund, well, okay, the way you deliver a super fund in 10 years or 20 years time might be completely different. And maybe we'll be using artificial intelligence or blockchain to deliver it. But what is it about a superannuation fund that's not going to change? It's about giving my members security, um, confidence in retirement. So by looking at what will change, but also what won't change, I think is a really important conversation when you're doing any sort of um, predictions and scenario planning. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that occurred to me listening to that. So uh, one is the, if you went back 10 years ago and said, what, what will change? Oh, we won't be using coal nearly as much. Uh, <laughs> would you have predicted the price of thermal coal be 400 US dollars a ton and that, that coal usage would be at record levels? I don't know. I, I doubt, and that's that's not exactly shiny and <laughs> bright, a bright, shiny sort of future, is it? And yet here we are. The other, and the other one is the artificial intelligence, which I, I find quite fascinating as well, because it's one of those things where people say, oh, we underestimate exponential relationships. Yes. And uh, I, I agree to some extent, although that's that the research around that is a, a bit narrower than people take it to mean. But I have tried that where I've given people and often financial advisors and investment sort of related people. So th these aren't sort of regular people off the street. And I give them an investment type question, which requires them to think about a long-term cumulative return. What's the Dow Jones? I don't know. If you put a hundred bucks in the Dow Jones a hundred years ago, what would it be now? And give me a, a confidence. No, I don't know, but give yeah. me a confidence range. What would it be between? So you can go, well, actually, you know what, this is an exponential relationship. And I think Simon's trying to trick me here. So what I'll do is give a nice wide range because I think I, I all right, that, that's what a sophisticated professional investor yeah. should do. And, and there probably many of them have done that. But even then, so I forget how many I had, but if there's 50 people in the room, I think maybe it was like one person had the answer in their range. It is still, okay, so, so fine, the exponential relationships are hard. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you double processing speeds on CPUs every two years or double memory mm -hmm. uh, chips capacities or uh, memory uh, RAM or whatever on computers, or even multiply the algorithm effectiveness. So look at sort of chess as an example mm -hmm. where you had, Years and not now so much, but certainly years and years and years since Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov back in 1997. Years and years and years went past. Mm -hmm. All this doubling of processing speeds and multiplications and exponential relationships and yada yada. And still, years and years later, we had people still involved in the process of helping machines actually do well at chess, despite all that exponential uh, sort of exponential growth. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, I, I think there's a, there's, it's not quite as straightforward around some of those sorts of uh, relationships as many people portray. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's right. Um, I mean, a great example, you mean you talk about artificial intelligence and the sort of one of the corollaries is the self-driving car. And it seems to be always five years away. 
no matter where you are, or 10 years away, you know, it's always five years away. Um, and there's a lot of technologies like, that are like that, which are always five years away. And in five years' time, it'll be five years away. Uh, until there is some sort of breakthrough where suddenly it's everywhere. Um, and often we, you know, it's hard to predict those. Yeah, and, and there actually is some research around the advent of artificial general intelligence. So the yeah. idea that we have a sentient type, like cyborg type person like that. And that research which went back decades. So like back to the 50s or 60s or something and said, oh, what do what are the experts in this field say at each point? And it was roughly 20 to 25 mm -hmm. years ahead of whenever they made the prediction, they said yep. 20 to 25 years. And you look at what the researchers were saying there and they're saying, well, part of it's uncertainty. They don't really know what the processes and the steps are going to be and will we have a breakthrough? And, and part of their explanation, which was somewhat cynical, I think, but perhaps realistic as well, is you say, well, what, what is the lifespan and career trajectory of these experts? And by the time they get to a position of being a professor or something, well, I don't know, they're probably 40s or 50 or something. They make a prediction that's then 20 years into the future. So if they turn out to be wrong, well, they're probably at the end of their career by then. They don't look that foolish. <laughs> Having yeah. said it, it turned out to be 50 years off the mark or something. Yeah. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. A bit more generous way of looking at it might be to say, well, they know it's likely to happen at some point. It's not a never-never, so it's not thousands of years or hundreds of years, but they know that there's a lot to be done before it gets there. So maybe, you know, 20 to 25 years is just another way of saying it'll happen, but we don't know when and it won't be infinite. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the analogy I like for that as well is the is the idea that you you um, you're in a rowboat, you're on a very foggy body of water, you don't know anything about this body of water, and you put the boat in the water and you start rowing. Okay, now after a minute of rowing, you're out, you can't see anything, it's completely foggy, and you go, "What's my best estimate of how far I've got to go?" And you've got no idea. You could be one percent of the way, you could be ninety nine percent of the way, and you go, "Well." Of all these possibilities between effectively very close to zero, I'm going across the Pacific Ocean to actually I'm about to bump into the shore. My best guess is I'm 50% of the way there. I've got half to go because it's just the, this is the average of my estimates. Okay, so then you row for another hour and then you go, all right, let me just do another assessment. Same thing. Your estimate is I'm 50% of the way there. So I'm 50, keep going 50% until eventually you hit the, you hit the, the, the shoreline. You're there, oh, now I'm 100%. So I wonder whether artificial intelligence is going to be the same thing. Eventually, we get to the breakthrough, but we have no idea until we get there. And I think that's right. I think it. I think uh, it's uncertain until it happens. So for some things like AI, will be very much in that category. Um, and you could say the smartphone was in that. You know, leading up to it, if you started talking about development of a smartphone, where will it be coming? Where will it be coming? Until it's there, and you can you can't predict it until it's there. And there'll be some things like that. You know, the unknown unknowns. Yes, indeed. But Stephen, I guess, I mean, we've covered a handful of things. We had a few other things that we could have covered, but maybe it's worthwhile just trying to bring them together and say, well, so how would you sort of sum up what, what we should be doing to make better predictions? What would be your top sort of hit list of things? Yeah. So understand the context. What's the outcome you're trying to drive? What, what action are you going to do based on this decision? And that will determine how, um, you know, from a, from a, risk of getting it wrong, what might happen. So, yeah, the context and the outcome. Um, what am I going to do with it? Um, I think always try and involve probabilities where you can and force that. Uh, Realise that you've got biases and uh, whether it's the planning fallacy, looking at the future, anchored in the past, when we're making decisions, we've got biases. 
have diversity in the decision-making process, I think is really important. And that's diversity in all sorts of different ways. The more complex the decision, the more diversity you should have in the room when you're, when you're thinking about it. So what do you mean by diversity in that case then? Diversity of background, diversity of thinking, back to the, you know, have the hedgehogs and the foxes there. Um, if you are making more strategic decisions, you need people from outside your organisation as well as people from inside. If you can, um, have some different views at the table. Um, so diversity of thinking and of backgrounds is really important. Um, and that helps to protect a bit about, a bit, predict a bit, bit against groupthink. Um, be prepared to do thought experiments and, you know, what if this happened rather than debating whether it will happen or not, I think is really important. And I think a, a reasonable um, sort of conclusion wraps all that up. Um, you know, many of us are familiar with George Box's quote about models, that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm. I would say all predictions are wrong, but some are useful. Um, and, and it's about understanding what's the use of it and what does a useful prediction or a useful forecast mean. Yeah, that sounds good. I might just add a couple of my own to the end as well. I mean, one of the things that, in fact, this came out of a session I did yesterday as well, but I see it all over the place, which is that we have a, uh, it seems to me, a general sense that things are uncertain, therefore everything will be wrong. And okay, I think that's, that's there's some, definitely some sense in that. When predictions are not going to be right. Okay, fine. However, some things are a damn sight more predictable than others. Mm. So the, the shorter, the short as a general, the shorter the term it is, yep. the more predictable it's going to be. The, the sort of the, the less noise in the system, the less complexity, the, the better we understand causality. All those things. So it's, um, in the session we we're talking about yesterday, it's like, well, gosh, everything's uncertain. I'm like, well, Compare, for example, economic forecasts and geopolitical forecasts, which we know are very difficult, so complex, so many drivers that we don't quite understand and we can't measure and we can't really get visibility and we're not really sure how they work. Okay, we've got some ideas, but not enough to really make credible predictions. Versus demographics, where, okay, fine, at the margin, we don't really know how many babies we're born next, next year but we can have a pretty good crack based on how many women are there in the population and the sort of average sort of birth rates and, and how many where there were last year. And yeah, we don't really know what net migrations can, but frankly, all the people who are 40 this year, they're going to be 41 next year, minus a handful who are going to have, have died, for example. But that sort of stuff, for example, you can predict with a great deal of certainty what's going to happen demographically, at least in short periods of time. So I think that understanding how much inherent uncertainty there is there in different decisions Yep. can give us a real guide to, therefore, how useful some different predictions can be. And I think that ties into the discussion we're having earlier about probabilities. So, you know, again, working with superannuation funds, one of the big parts, one of the big drivers of any sort of model is dem demographics and especially longevity, life expectancy. And if you read the research, you know, at one extreme, you've got a, a small group of people that believe um, life expectancy could hit a 1,000. Now, I don't think it will ever happen, but that is one view out there. And if you do your Googling, you'll find that there is a small group of people that believe that eventually life, life expectancy will hit 1,000. There are others that say 115 is the limit. There's a ceiling. There's others that talk about 120. So if I'm doing work with a super fund, I'm not going to use 1,000 as my life expectancy prediction. It's the probability of it is so small and even the consequence is so small, I'm not going to worry about it. 
But maybe whether it's 115 or 120 or 103, it doesn't matter that much. Directionally, I know it is increasing. I know it is going up. Yes, there could be some major health health research, genetic engineering that could change that dramatically. Um, but we do know it's increasing. So similar to your example about whether it's net migration or whatever, we understand the direction it's going. We understand the various likelihood of the various outcomes. Um, use that to build our scenario of the future. Yeah. And also, again, it depends what's, what period you're looking at. If it's yeah. next year, we're not going to suddenly have a whole lot of the 120-year-olds next year. This this is going to have to obviously have to grow yeah. old. Healthy people have to grow old to get to that, yeah. Yeah, that point. Yeah, and, and I looked at my list of things that I would add, and, and I, one of them is, I cl- think, closely aligned to yours as well, which is the variety of approaches. So that's the, the sort of the, the more the fox approach, which I think is interesting because it's not just, I think, I, I agree with your point about diversity, but to some extent you can do that yourself as well, which is to sort of say, actually, you know what, if I'm going to look at this thing, I mean, it's a bit like an investor saying, I'm going to look at its an earnings multiple to judge its valuation, but I'm also going to look at its balance sheet and its net assets, and I'm also going to look at this and I'm also, and whether I have three things and triangulate or I have five things and pentagram eight or whatever the word is for, for <laughs> finding the middle of a pentagram, uh, for example, yeah, that, that sort of stuff. And that, that's I think one of the resounding findings that's come out of that predicting research is yeah. that one there's never going to be one right approach but multiple approaches can have a, a, a combination that effectively is better than any of the individuals so i think i'd definitely add that to my to my list as well and i think you know uh, a corollary to that is to think about decision making prediction the future plausible futures forecasting there are frameworks people have written a lot around it so if you want to be better at predicting or better at forecasting or better scenario planning Research, go and find out the different models that are used um, and which ones work for you in your situation. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll close up. Thank you for for those who have participated live uh, today and for everyone else who's joining us online. Um, If you'd like to connect with Stephen or me, you can do so via LinkedIn. Uh, is the best approach. Um, also, my forthcoming book, Behavioral Finance, a guide for listed equities teams, is going to be covering uh, a number of these topics, which is in the final throws of layouts and and, uh, and proofreading and the like. So hopefully it's not too far away. Um, but on that note, I think we'll close up. So thank you everyone, everyone for your time today. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me, Simon. It's been great to be part of the conversation.